Hi everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Genre Equality Podcast on the Genre Equality channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. At, oh my god, like, wh- whose music is that? I, 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 I think Hadi has returned to the podcast. What? Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> it's me! It's always been me! He's been here this whole time. <laughs> I know he's just been listening in the background, but yeah. I've I've just not let Hardy talk like, because he's he's generally so full of shit. So, uh, but he begged and he begged, and after about just close to two yes. years, I've I've decided to let him speak his piece wow. like, at least at least for maybe like 30, 30 minutes per episode, so he doesn't he doesn't annoy you all so much anyway. But um, uh, he is new for those of us who have found us on. YouTube. Oh, yeah. Um, so we got to reintroduce Hadi. Hadi was one of our founding members back when this podcast was formed uh, four years ago, just about oh, four, years four years ago. ago. Yeah. Four years. Yes, Hadi. Um, how has life been for you for the last two years? What's what's been going on? What's new? What's different? All right. I mean, I've been working really hard. You know, I got mm-hmm. married. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. oh, yeah, you're Mister now. This yeah. Um. Yeah, and it's, it's been quite fun so far. Uh, and I, I, I now that work has kind of like, taken a scaled down a little, you know, and mm-hmm. decided to uh, reintroduce myself to genre equality. Awesome. Absolutely, you know, and, and, and with Hadi here, he can take some of the load off my back, <laughs> particularly uh, with one topic that we'll talk about later, Star Trek Discovery, and later on this year, Star Trek Picard. Uh-huh. Um, I will, I, I suppose I'll chime in a little bit in, in just to say that I've kind of abandoned um, my first love in sci-fi, Star Trek. Like, new Star Trek is just not for me. <laughs> I understand. Uh, and Hadi can take over from that. But besides that, we have lots to talk about this month, man, on Genre Equality mm-hmm. 50. Of course, uh, we'll be talking about the final, sixth and final season of The Expanse, which has just recently wrapped up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be talking about the first and only season of Station Eleven. Uh, plus, I'll be talking about movies like Petite Maman, The Tragedy of Macbeth, Scream 5, alongside shows like Naomi, Archive 81, etc., etc. Uh, and for the poll list, right, and you want to stick for this, um, we'll be discussing the Three Body Problem trilogy, mm. aka The Remembrance of Earth's Past by Lucius Sin, yep. uh, one of the most groundbreaking hard sci-fi series of novels that have come out in the last 20 years, particularly in the Chinese sci-fi scene. But we'll begin with one of the favorite shows that we've ever reviewed on genre equality, uh, The Expanse, which has consistently gotten rave reviews from mm-hmm. us. We love this book series, we love this show. And the sixth and final seasons of The Expanse is done. And we are here to pay tribute and say farewell to, I think, the undisputed greatest sci-fi show of the current era. Oh, yeah. uh, season six picks up with the solar system at war. Uh, Marco Enaros and his free navy continue to launch devastating asteroid attacks on Earth and Mars. The tensions of war and shared loss threatened to pull the crew of the Rocinante apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christian Everzerala, back in the head of the UN, makes boat move after boat move mm-hmm. and sends former Martian Marine Bobby Draper on a secret mission with the Rossi that could possibly turn the tide of the conflict. Meanwhile, in the belt, uh, Drama and what's left of her family are on the run after betraying Marco. Uh, and on a distant planet beyond the rings called Laconia, um, a new alien power begins to arise. Um, let's begin with Ice. Uh, no, sorry. Let's begin with Hadi, since you're back. <laughs> oh right? yes. Uh, um, what did you think of season six of The Expanse? Was it a satisfying end, or was it hampered by its shorter six episode run? Um. Okay. I doubt it. I don't think it was actually hampered by its six episode run. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I felt that it closed really well. A lot of most of the like main storylines that were going on. Yeah. Um, with a lot of like, um, I mean, there's no time for it. Like, you know, what happens with the proto molecule and all that is not really covered, lah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, spoiler yeah. alert. I guess. No, no. Uh, not really, lah. Not, not really. really not really. Yeah. You know, yeah. but uh, I like. Are we in spoiler territory now, or are we? No, uh, we'll, we'll just give like uh, general reviews okay, and we'll leave sure. spoilers to the end. So, um, I felt that every every big story had a really really, really satisfying conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The whole conflict between Earth, Mars and the Belt, I I felt was one of the best um, ways it could have ended. Yeah. Um, it Nothing felt um, convenient. Like, mm-hmm. everything was well earned. Like, um, all the moves that Earth did, right? All the mistakes they did, they paid for it. Same yep. way that all the, the, the mistakes that Marco and Arios made, he paid for it. Mm. You know, so there was real consequences to everybody's actions and all that. And you felt it and you felt how the, the politics and all that really, like, kind of evolved as the six episodes went on. Yeah. Um, and I like the humanity side of The Expanse about how mm. they explore humanity and all that. And again, uh, season six doesn't disappoint in that aspect. Like, you know, we go on to see how um, we want to build peace out of war. Like. And, yes. and that was something that was dutifully done throughout the six episodes. Um, I really loved the evolution of all the main characters. I felt that they all had really good endings to it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so all in all, this was a near-perfect season. Uh, I didn't mind that it was one of the shorter seasons. Uh and I didn't mind that they were, there was other things that were not really, um, like, I mean, it's, it's all about, like, cliffhangers, right? Yeah. But yeah. those cliffhangers, I feel can, you know, if you read the books and all that, you, you can satisfy it there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Um, what about you, Aisa? What do you think about the final scene? Oh, man. Uh, I think it, there's something to be said about the achievement of squeezing literally a Wolf's book of arcs into six episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. very very tight pacing very very well planned and uh, just in general well structured things uh, uh, by and large I agree largely with Hardy there are a couple of plot points that I felt were a bit uh, rushed necessarily mm-hmm. or not so much in the, they weren't well earned but the way in which they were presented was strange and there were a few characterizations that are old complaints from former episodes that reappear mm-hmm. again uh, yep. you know, uh, mainly Holden being a giant walking plot device, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. which again happens, right? Yes, like, no, no, we're not going to dive into spoilers yet, yeah. but again, it happens. Uh, but I've I've made my peace with it. I made my peace with it in season two, you know, uh, and it's part of the ride, you know, uh, mm-hmm. to kind of understand that. But yeah, I I totally agree with Hardy. I love the way uh, I love where our characters have landed uh, at the end of six seasons. Um, mm-hmm. I love the fact that they took out some time to tease what the future of the the universe looks like, uh, with yep. Laconia and all of that. Um, you know, uh, I love the fact that they threw in like little hints kind of here and there. By and large, like having, you know, uh, having kind of our characters sit down for that kind of like meal, right? Um, which is not yeah. spoiler. Like that for me felt good right right before kind of the climax of everything mm-hmm. before the finale all of them sitting down having that meal right what's kind of the an encapsulation of at the end of the day what the show is all about right like it's a tough universe you know um but someone's got to try and make a difference and these people are um definitely the crew has changed and all that but i, I do feel like across the time like we've we've become very invested in in 
all of their stories, more or less. Um, and with some surprising twists and turns here and there, it has been quite a ride and I'm very happy with the way they decided to kind of wrap it up. I think having the ability to know that it's your last season and you got to stick to landing really does, well, put a fire under your ass and encourage people to, you know, not mess up. Sure. Um, one of the supposed weaknesses of uh, the X-Men Season 6, of course, widely discussed is its shortness and the fact that it left, as Heidi mentioned, a lot of dangling plot threads with regards to Laconia and the protomolecule and the aliens in uh, you know, other systems, mm-hmm. etc. Right? Um, I think what they want you to do, being this, uh, being, you know, since this is a very faithful adaptation of uh, the books, is that I think you can easily pick up mm the novels and continue on. Mm. The only big difference that between the show and the novels is that Alex Kamal is dead. That's it. Yep. <laughs> you know, that's the only difference other than that is exactly the same. Um, if you pick up the next book after the story arc, it flash, um, it, it, it time jumps, flash forwards, 30 plus years. They would have needed to recast every single actor. Um, so, you know, um, it's fit for a reboot, you know, if you want to bring this back 5, 10, 20, 30 years from now. Yeah. Um, sure, you can even recast the old actors if, if, they're, if they're old enough and they, they look, <laughs> look the part, you know. Yeah. But I, I, I feel like they picked a spot in the book that's as good as any to, to end this right now. Mm. Um, what are the strengths of the season? Firstly, I think uh, season 6, more than season 5, 4, 3. The action scenes looked and felt the best here. Oh, yeah. It seems like they threw a lot of money in that final episode, especially. Yep. Um, space opera, space battles mm-hmm. have never looked as good in any show as it looks as good on the expense here, Agreed. particularly with the climactic uh, battle. Mm-hmm. Um, we get to spend a lot of time with everyone's growth. Uh, Kara G as drummer, I think oh. uh, Loki um, steals the show yeah. this season. Yeah. Um, perhaps due to the abbreviated uh, episode order, uh, some characters maybe got the short shaft. I felt Mm -hmm. that uh, Philip probably wasn't as developed as I'd like him to be. His uh, redemption arc, uh, while I understood it conceptually, uh, feels very rushed Mm. uh, because it was. Uh, And, you know, what are you going to do? If you're going to sacrifice a character, like sacrifice that fuckboy Philip because nobody cares about him. (laughs) Uh, Naomi doesn't care about him. Marco doesn't care about him. The fans don't care about him. Um, you yeah, know, his he, mother, like... He did have a few feeling... good moments, though. Yeah. He did, yeah. yeah. But it was a little... Like, I would have liked his arc to have more time to breathe yeah, because it felt correct, correct. very quick, like, like, like his turn, you know. Oh, I, I made friends yeah. with, like, a guy, you know, and then, like, now I'm good. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, th- those are, like, very small nitpicky issues. Mm. Uh, do you have any small nitpicky issues uh, with the Expense uh, Season 6? So, let's start with you, uh, Hadi. Um, okay, I mean, I know... I. I, I think this is just the flavor, but I really appreciate that there was a lot more budget in the action scenes and all that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, however, I, I still felt that I I, I, I liked it because... I'm not sorry, it is nitpicky, but I guess it was a bit too flashy for the expense I felt sometimes. Oh, interesting. Which okay, is okay. weird. Okay. Just because I like that uh, the expense focuses on like great distances and all that between the ships and all that where you can barely see. Yeah. There's barely any real action just because a real space battle in the future sh- would look something like that mm-hmm. where you're unable to really see your enemy. It's all about you know the radars and all the, you know, and all the gadgetry on your ship telling you that you're going to hit your enemy, that kind of thing. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I, I appreciate, but I appreciate the, the 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 budget going into it and all that and making it a bit more flashy, space opera like, you know, a bit more Star Wars y lah. Yeah. <laughs> mm. uh, so it's not like I say it's a nitpick, it's just the flavor and all that. So I understood why they went this direction also. I, I like I say it's not a bad or good thing, lah. It's just yep. it's just my my little nitpick lah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Okay, okay. Uh what about you, Isa? Uh, I, I think for me, it's again like about the characterization, right? Philip Holden continues to be this walking duo sex machina. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That, that I mean, it. I, I think I've come to, to the point where it's like, okay, sure, let's see how they do it now, right? As opposed to be instead of whining about it. Um, you know, similar complaints to season five, I think as well, like uh, Marcos Inaros is just a caricature of a villain at this point in time, right? And I think this season only serves to highlight that in contrast to the rest of the characters who have had these like amazing kind of arcs and are finally coming into their own as we reach the conclusion of this arc. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Philip, same thing. I think Na- Naomi as well also felt like she was shoehorned into a particular role, you know, in order to... Uh, in order to deliver some very key, very deep, very important lines, but outside of that, there wasn't much for her besides mm. a few key scenes, you know. And I understand mm. when you have a huge ensemble cast like this, it's hard to divide the time up that way. I'm glad that my my show favorites, right, Kamina and, and Amos, are getting all the screen time that they deserve and ought to get and need and have those fully... Um, fleshed out. I'm glad Bobby got her screen time. I'm mm-hmm. glad Avatarala got her screen time. Mm-hmm. You know, and the rest of them, sure, some sacrifices need to be made, right? And I'm okay with those sacrifices like, as far as it goes. But those are my nitpicks, basically. Sweet. Okay. Um, we've kind of talked about the show um, in general right now. So let's delve a bit into spoiler territory. So if you guys haven't seen The Expense Season 6 and would like not to hear any spoilers... Um, tune out right now. It will be in the timestamps and then come back when we when we're done. Mm-hmm. Um, let's start with you, Hadi. Like no, sure. uh, now that now that you're free to talk about <laughs> anything about season six, you know, mm-hmm. um, give me the specifics. Like you know, all the things that you liked and disliked that you talked about in general in like finicky terms. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, tell me exactly what you mean. Okay, so like the the you know the final space battle thing. You know when they were in the coming onto the proto molecule-ish planet thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, you, the one the, the marines station, yeah the station it. yeah then they were landing and Amos was flying in his in his uh, <laughs> seat <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I yeah. was like that's a bit much but okay never mind like I said it was really nitpicky but I still enjoyed the action though uh, I, mm. I love that that um, the, the, the tactics and all that were used you know like how they constructed a space battle again mm. impresses me all the time mm. every single season mm. whenever I see a space battle I'm always very impressed at oh this is the most realistic space battle that it's possible, anyway. Uh, mm. Apart from that, I really loved... Okay, so Marco Scenarius, my only issue with him, right, was that yeah. his speeches were getting less and less... Like, it didn't make sense anymore, like, why you yeah. want to follow this guy? Yeah, it's like... A... He was so charismatic last year. Uh, the fact that he devolved this year almost feels like a flaw in the writing because Marco was never this... Uh, lame. Yeah. <laughs> it's essentially like he used to deliver great promos. Like, sorry to All use right. the pressing term, you know. Uh, but like now he's just like speaking in generic, yes. or, like with like you know cheap pops and stuff. It's it's a bit meh la. Like I felt like they dropped the ball with Marco. Same, year. I agree there. So that, that was another thing that just bothered me a bit. Was like Marcos, can you like shut up? <laughs> like you're gonna lose people. And like so, it felt weird that the free navy 
Okay, but then again, you know, it's a huge navy. Not everybody hears what Marker says. You know, it's just maybe yeah. the pocket of people mm. around him. Mm. Um, yeah, and you know, and they're, they're, his supporting characters like Philip. I thought Philip, that's his son's name, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So Philip, I felt uh, was a good counter to that. I just wish, like you all said, like more time for him to develop and all that. A bit rushed. I agree. Um, yeah. I liked his lieutenant. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, what's her name? She was such a good balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to be the human humanity, the merciful kind of character and all that, like to understand the the where where the belters were supposed to go in the future, la. I think she's pragmatic, more pragmatic than merciful. But I know what you mean. Ah, yeah. so pragmatic, yeah, that's a better word, correct? Yeah. Um, and all that. So the belter politics, I felt, uh, drama's cause was a lot more um, the cause that I would have followed, like if I was a belter, la, You know. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But uh, I felt the best move of this season was the last uh episode of Holden um giving mm. away his uh title to oh my drama la. his <laughs> resignation <laughs> la, his resignation. Yep. 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 In the the first time we ever saw Holden, he turned down a job out of immaturity, and now he turned down the job out of maturity. So it's a full yeah. circle character arc kind of thing. Um. What about you, Isa? Oh man. Um. Okay, so just some kind of like nitpicky plot points, right? Mm-hmm. Like we've already talked about Marcos. Fully agree with Hardy. Um, like he goes from like charismatic like leader, um, kind of like a genius, uh, at what he's doing, technician, technician yeah. right? Into just being like you know every other like egocentric tyrant out there, right? In in mm-hmm. the span of like a couple of weeks, if we follow yeah. the, within the timeline, and that to me is very difficult to kind of believe. Um, you know, it's great that they brought in a new first mate that that kind of like tempers that and you know plays plays the tries to resolve things between the father and son, which I thought all those scenes were great. I'm very sad to see her go, but you know, uh, part and parcel of the plot, lah. Um, yeah. Okay, so the oh, what big big spoilers? If you guys are still listening because you think again, this is a massive ass spoiler, right? Mm-hmm. The way mm-hmm. Naomi delivers the final plan to be. Inaros, mm-hmm. right? Felt mm-hmm. so out of place, right? <laughs> There's something to be said about the fact that um, at that point in time, the Rosinante has like three torpedoes left, right? Yes. As opposed to all the way at the beginning of the season where Kamina Kim- says like, we have only three torpedoes. You compare those two scenes, right? And how dire it feels in those scenes yeah. uh, where where Kamina and her crew in less lines did, did deliver the desperation of their of their state as mm-hmm. opposed to what happens in the Rosinante just prior to Naomi like yeah. oh you know what we're gonna like fucking wake up the ring right and I was just like why like you you that didn't feel earned like how do you jump mm-hmm. from that where Holden right being the careful cynical kind of captain that he is when it comes to like strategy and all of that Goes like we're fine. We got this many. We got forty percent on our PDFs. We've got uh, this many torpedoes. Well, you know, we can fight it out. Da, da, da. We're gonna take a last stand. Out of nowhere, Naomi is like, "I have this brilliant idea. Let's just use the fucking ring, right?" Uh, and it's it it doesn't feel like apt. I understand why it's done. I understand where it features in the storyline. I understand what it is, what it means for the future of the book. But that scene just didn't click it for me, and I found that to be to be immersion breaking at that point in time, right? Because it mm-hmm. doesn't feel like the odds are as overwhelming as it sounds when they're saying it. 
Uh, yeah, I, I knew he was just eager to kill her, her no good son. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, like obviously her hate, her hate for Marco is way way more than the love for the son. Yeah, way more than love yeah. for the son. She did try. I mean, honestly, was it season four when she was kidnapped? Yep. yep. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that whole sequence with her on on board the Pella and all of that, some fantastic scenes, some yeah. fantastic character work. We don't get to see much of that in season six, which mm-hmm. I think is unfortunate. Uh, but that was yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, Naomi's best moment was her reaction to actually pushing the button to kill her son. Yeah. Uh, as, as we know, Philip does survive, but like Naomi doesn't know that. Yeah. Uh, um, apparently, the scream that she delivers, like after that, uh, which was muted out, was like kind of improv on her part, and I thought it was it felt very visceral. Yeah. That was it the was, best yeah. Naomi moment of the season, uh, and it came a bit too little, too late. Also, Isa, it, yeah. it's PDC, mm-hmm. not PDF. Oh, sorry. Uh, as <laughs> yeah. you can see, yeah. my my mind is wrapped up in what. You can you can convert that. Uh. Yeah, 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 for uh. sure. Yeah. Look, <laughs> most con- like highest conversion rate of any religion in the world, PDF. Um, yeah, yeah. Um yeah, a- a- any final thoughts, like spoilery thoughts that uh, either of you have? Oh man. Um spoilery Earth was really or... Earth was just really aggressive this season. Yeah, but I mean do you But they were getting attacked throughout la, so that's why. For sure. Mm-hmm. I think Avashrala did an amazing like she yeah. is she is a master class in people management. It's yeah. insane how good she is at it. Right? For her to rap like even that meeting that she had with Kamina, oh my god, that was so good. That was hair standingly good. Yeah. Uh, for the two of them just to like show up in the middle of the market and like have their discussion there, I thought was insane. Both mm-hmm. actresses at the peak of their power. Um, but then because of like the strength of uh what's her name? Christian because of her right so we got very little of Mars yes you know we got a lot of Earth Mars Mm. was kind of like a supporting character even though like Mars had like the stronger Navy yeah Yeah. oh yeah for sure I I do feel like they kind of resolved that in um, season 4 as well right with Bobby kind of like going undercover undercover yeah Yeah. yeah. Mars is a lot more fractured as a as a as a government than mm. they were before, right? And of course, mm. like, continually taking damage from the Belter, our free navy and stuff like that. Yep. So I understand... Uh, m- most of them went through the rings to, to colonize. That is true. So yeah. Mars, Mars is pretty much gone, like, as we knew it, like, as we knew it in the first three seasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. like, yeah, I totally understand why Chrissy is, like, <laughs> at the head or the forefront of that. <clears throat> but with mm. any sort of, like... Any sort of of organization where everything rests on a single person, right? Then in naturally that organization inherits the flaw of that single person. Uh, if she yep. didn't have the Rossi, right? If Kamina didn't come on board, then Earth would be mm-hmm. in a much poorer place than it is. You know, uh, I, I I just love the fact that she's constantly conflicted and has to make hard decisions, but she never shies away from making those decisions, um, mm. which is. In contrast to Holden, I think, who either has decisions made for him or makes stupid decisions or and all of that, right? But ends up the plot moves forward because of him nonetheless. Um, you know, so. Uh, outside of that, I spoiler-wise, I'm fucking excited to see if they do a season 7 for the time jump. Mm-hmm. I'm super excited for this new whatever his name, Duarte. Him as oh, the, the Laconian... The yeah Imperial the, Navy future lah basically yeah right because yeah. you know there's this whole thing if you guys are still listening there's a whole thing about the credit end credits for the last episode you guys can go read up about that how those are mm-hmm. actually spoilers or you know whatever 
the third of uh, the Martians lah that left, right? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Right, like this new villain character that we are seeing. I love it. I love it so far. It looks intensely like manipulative, like real evil. Like Marcos is understandable evil. This one feels like real evil. His lines about "I have got gods to kill" send shivers down mm-hmm. my spine. I really want to see that. <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, my favorite part of, I guess, the ending was, of course, the roundtable discussion that Mars had with uh, Earth and the belts and trying to, you know, um, elect the new transport union, uh, transport <laughs> authority mm, leader, yeah, et cetera, yeah, yeah. et cetera. Um, specifically with Holden, who has always been, I guess, the morality of the show. Um, he is kind of the, the new age beta male protagonist that may not be fun to watch because he doesn't make cool or badass decisions, but um, somehow, I mean, through you know plot convenience, makes the right moral ones. Yeah. Uh, but he does he does mention that uh, Marco, for all his egocentricity uh, and he his uh, genocide, essentially, um, wasn't all wrong because you know he had like so many good points, and it was important, I think, for the show not to discount the belt uh, and yeah, legit. You know grievances, mm-hmm. uh, just because you know Marco did this thing, you know. Yeah. Um, so it, it was important for the show to say that, like, because Earth has always been, um, portrayed as you know the good guys. Yeah. But you know, like I like that the show brought back the idea that you know at the very first scene that we saw Christian was you know her torturing a belter on hooks, yeah. right? You know, like like you know like Earth was uh, Earth, Earth has its flaws, like, and and why the belt decided to attack Earth in that way. Um, was based on some very real things, some mm-hmm. very valid concerns. Yeah. Uh, and I'm glad they addressed that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, that was it for me. Uh, any last thoughts before we give our rating? Yeah. Uh, I'm good. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, Hadi, what's your rating? Uh, are we doing points or by grade? Uh, let's do it. Uh, out of ten. Out of ten, I'll give it like a nine out of ten. Mm. Wow, that's quite high. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Isa? Uh, I'm gonna give it an eight. Right. Um. Yeah. I think like they've rolled on like a, a lot of goodwill over the last five seasons, and season six didn't disappoint at all. Right. So I'm gonna give it a mm. solid eight for me. Uh, I'm giving it a seven point five, which is also quite high. I mean, all three of us have like different um standards to clear and whatever, but seven point five, eight, and nine are all very good ratings. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Uh, so they're they're always like you know it's either A plus A or A minus. Mm-hmm. So uh, very well done. Uh, how does be- how does the expense rank for you in terms of you know all-time great space operas does it make your mount rushmore or does it fall just be- below certain other shows no i think this has this has hit the mount rushmore already mm. okay so mm. what, what what is your mount rushmore of like space opera type of stuff i mean your star wars mm. uh sure okay mm, mm. uh tv shows tv shows oh tv shows oh. yeah star wars not fair lah, because yeah <laughs> star wars not fair well, with, yeah. with what Star Wars is doing with their TV now... Um, Which are not space operas, though. That, they are, they are gang, is, the gangster westerns. That's westerns. true, that's true. That's very true. Yeah. Um, yeah, for I mean, me... Like, I, okay, for me, Firefly will be one of them. Yep, yep. Yep. Okay. Um, uh, Man in the High Castle wasn't bad. Sci-fi. Not a space opera. Oh yeah, fi- not a space opera. But they had, they had, they had time. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's true. Not space opera. We're doing space opera. In, huh? Yeah. It never went to space a single time in Man in High Castle. Sorry, no. I was thinking of another show. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um. Oh shit! I, all the things. Okay, Star Trek. Uh, DS Nine. Mm, sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Uh, Star Trek. Uh, Next Gen. Sure. Uh. 
and then what did I say to the what was my first one that I picked just now? Firefly. Firefly. Mm. So so the expense would be your fourth. La. And then yeah, fourth of, yeah. of your of your Mount Rushmore. Okay. Yeah. Um what about what about you, Aisa? Does it does it rank as high as, as Hadis? Um okay, it definitely breaks my top five. At the moment, given how little we've gotten of like true space opera in the last decade or so, yeah, I think expense has to rank top. Like I agree with all Hadi's choices. Like those definitely sit very, very high for me in terms of all time space operas. Um, but those are at this point in time classics <laughs> almost, right? As far as sci fi goes. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. Um, you know, for sure. Um, and I don't think anything has come close within the last decade or so. So mm. I'm gonna put I it would say the... last twenty years nothing really come close. Yeah. Uh our, last twenty years is a bit strong, but last ten years definitely. Yeah, last... Because um Ooh. there are two shows in the last twenty years that I think top uh the expense, but last ten years definitely past or the past decade. Number one best sci-fi show and number two best space opera show. Like, yeah. No question yeah. in the last, last 10, years. ten years. It doesn't quite crack the top five for me because I would rank Firefly, mm-hmm. Farscape, DS9, Ooh, Babylon 5, uh, and Battlestar Galactica above uh, the expense. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely okay. had Firefly, Battlescape, I, okay, okay, uh, okay. Battlestar, and um, Babylon 5 up there. In terms of all time, mm-hmm. I didn't think about yeah. Farscape. I actually need to. Yeah, I didn't think about Farscape at all. So, well, but that was a good choice. Mm. Yeah, that's from like the mid '90s, so it was like a bit of a. It was way back, right? It was way back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Babylon yeah, so, Five. Yeah. That's a good choice, also. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was always the, the big debate between Babylon Five and Deep Space Nine fans because they were <laughs> such similar shows. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. it's on a space uh, station. Correct, exactly. With, with the same type of dynamics, the same type of very dark political undertone yeah. to it and everything. Uh, Farscape was just pure escapist uh, space opera. And Battlestar Galactica, I think, does the politics mm-hmm. yeah. and the post, post-9-11 darkness better than The Expense did. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, okay. Until it sort of fell sort of apart in this final season, but uh, like, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, but for the most part, it was, I think, better. Uh, but yeah, The Expense definitely for the last 10 years, mm. number one. Okay. Um, yeah, that was our review for the final season of The Expanse. Uh, we may come back maybe in the future once I finish reading the books to, to see, you know, to maybe give a poll list review about how The Expanse continues. Yep, yep. Uh, but I haven't gotten there yet, so give me some time. Uh, let's move on though to topic number two, which is a mini series called uh, Station Eleven. Um, if you look at the timing of HBO Max's Station Eleven, it is either very unfortunate. Or very spectacular, depending on how you look at it. Yep. This uh, 10-part adaptation of Emily St. John Mandel's acclaimed novel about the aftermath of a flu pandemic that wipes out 99% of humanity um, arise while we're still you know, fretting about the impact of each new COVID variant and how it will impact our lives, right? And I think many viewers may simply not have the tolerance for scenes where people cough in public spaces and hot supplies <laughs> and debate about the efficacy of masks in an airborne plague. But the majority of the limited series, as adapted by Patrick Somerville and directed by Atlanta's Hiro Murai, actually takes place 20 years in the future, uh, where we follow Kristen, played by Mackenzie Davis, mm-hmm. uh, who you may know from Blade Runner 2049, Hot and Catch Fire. Uh, yeah, Terminator, Sentry Perro, and lots of other stuff. Um, she plays Chris, this character named Kristen who um, tours the American Midwest with a company of actors and musicians called the Traveling Symphony mm-hmm. who perform Shakespeare plays for survivors eager to experience any bit of culture from the world they once knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the show through those, those Shakespearean plays and you know those uh, improv 
uh, acting shows that they put on, explores what art can and cannot heal, uh, as well as what pieces of what pieces of old society could or should potentially survive such an apocalypse. Um, and it feels even more relevant and powerful than when the book was published in 2015, particularly because we're living in the midst of a of pandemic. A pandemic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah um, and the show sounds bleak because of its premise, but it's actually a marvelous blend of both despair and whimsy because I think the show's reliance on flashbacks and other non-linear storytelling um, is also by far the smartest and most effective use of those devices that TV has seen in quite a while, mm-hmm. uh, since the Watchmen, I, I would say. Mm-hmm. And and Station Eleven also features some of the year's most tear-inducing moments. Uh, a healthy mix of very quirky, very funny comedy, some very riveting oddness, some magical realism. Uh, and despite the seemingly again bleak subject matter, the action, ex- you know, like the action and suspense of Kristen trying to protect her friends from various cults or whatever, right? Station Eleven is actually surprisingly goofy. Uh, and surprisingly light on its on its feet with, you know, um, sometimes there is an impromptu rap cover of A Trap Called West breaking out <laughs> to, to liven up a tense moment or there are magical sequences of pregnant ladies dancing to TLC's Creep in a department <laughs> yep. store. Um, there's even a moving rendition of Hamlet that manages to solve everyone's problems and heal, heal all wounds, wounds. In, in, in the final episode. So this is the rare post-apocalyptic dystopia that emphasizes hope instead of cynicism it's the anti-walking dead I was just gonna uh, say that yeah yeah um, Hadi you've recently like finished watching all the episodes yeah. here what do you think about about Station Eleven I would say now it, 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 they're literally I cannot find a single flaw in this show yeah yeah same like I loved it so much great acting all around great writing just beautiful it was like a beautiful rendition of a pandemic Mm. Like you saw the pandemic on a wide scale and then on a very intimate scale within like a family, within like two characters, you know, throughout the entire, you know, because it's a lot of flashbacks here and there. Uh, yeah. yeah. So you had that sense of what it was like throughout the years and it only, you can only accomplish uh, like really appreciating it when you watch all, all the episodes relatively close to one another. Mm. Like, just because of the the back and forth can get a bit confusing at times. Yep. Yeah, but uh, because I managed to catch most of the episodes in one or two sittings only. Mm. So for me, it felt like a great tapestry of like time. You know, what happened in that 20 years since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And um, beautifully acted by Mackenzie Dunn. Wait. Davis. Davis. Who's Mackenzie Dunn? <laughs> uh, Mackenzie Dunn is a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt world champion oh, yeah. yes thank you sorry oh my god yeah. cross wires so bad that one <laughs> yeah yeah so yes I, I would watch Mackenzie uh, Dunn act yeah she's also very good she can just triangle people everywhere in a post-apocalypse <laughs> that true. would be a good show yeah. yeah sorry about that um, yeah so Station Eleven you know um, that that moment before the pandemic strikes you know it felt so real yeah. Like, it felt like... And that's because we just got... We just went through it. Mm-hmm. You know? Therefore, Byron, our flu is not so deadly, lah, you know? Yes. It's just... But it, it's still... You just felt it in your, your your soul, you know, as you're watching it. 
Um, the, the reaction, uh, some people wanted to hoard, some people don't believe what they're watching yeah. in the news, some people don't want to wear masks, some people do, you know, things like that. Like, we see, we see it all, we've seen it all. Exactly, and we have experienced yeah. it in real life as well. So, it was a weird um, thing where um, uh, fiction matches uh, reality. Yeah, uh, and the weird thing is, like, this show was filmed before, before COVID-19. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think it was a good... Uh, uh, piece of luck for them like, I guess you know that a pandemic really hit us la. yeah mm-hmm. um, anyway um, overall uh, I have no I, I cannot find any flaws in this show uh, I yeah. love the mythology that they were building uh, you know around mm-hmm. the, the, the comic book station 11 uh, yep. used by uh, the two main I mean two characters la, who, who, who one who memorized it and one who carries it around actually both memorized it la. Yeah, both pretty much memorized it. Yeah, I know. And how that story, you know, intertwines the entire tapestry of the six mm. episodes. So beautifully done. Um, uh, the, the whole Shakespearean... Uh, Shakespeare- Angle. Angle also really, really does very well in this. You yeah. Know, the, 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 uh, the need to preserve art um, has a certain importance to it especially in a world where everything is devastated and everything is gone and how we take it for granted you know like wikipedia and all that suddenly becomes such an important facet of life Mm. you know the 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 scenes of the people at the airport downloading wikipedia every as much as possible was actually quite horrific but you know um real i don't know yeah yeah. i feel like i would do that i feel i will start downloading wikipedia before the internet shuts down you know yeah yeah (laughs) same yeah yeah yeah. um and and yeah, you know, it's it's. I feel like the thing that I gravitated most towards it is because I've watched a lot of post-apocalyptic shows. A lot of sci-fi is post-apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is. Mm-hmm. And this is the first one, I think, that argues that the world is, for the most part, a better place once the old systems are gone and people can begin anew. Um, if you notice, the, the theme of the show was the people who are born post-pandemic are very naive and innocent. Mm-hmm. And... All the danger comes from the people who were born pre-pandemic, yep. who are manipulative and suspicious and dangerous. Um, it also argues, uh, refreshingly, in an, you know, in as we live in a country where you know artists are not essential workers, um, it argues that like art and stories are what can help us understand each other yeah. and communicate things that are too painful to say out loud. Yeah. It's art and stories that get us through the dark times and the tragedies, and it has been. I don't know, it's been a long time. It's been two years since I've given a 10 out of 10 review on mm. genre equality. Um, the last 10 out of 10 was for Watchmen in 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you can see, I, like, I don't give out perfect scores willy-nilly. Like, it's, it's something that doesn't even happen once a year. It happens once every two or three years. And it happens so rarely. But I think, much like Hadi said, I'm trying to think of a nitpick. I'm trying to think of something that went wrong with the show. Um, the ensemble is perfect. Mm-hmm. Not just Mackenzie Davis, but the girl who plays the younger, the younger version, version of her is yeah. very good as well. Um, everyone, you know, Jeevan and, and the entire cast is perfect. This is just a perfect show that deserves a perfect score. It's a 10 out of 10 for me. What about you, Hadi? Uh, much to, contr- uh, contrary to popular belief, even yeah. though I'm more lenient, I've never given a 10 out of 10. Um, I think you did for Bojack Season 4 and 5. Oh, yes, yes, correct. That that's might be the all, only that's all, one right? though. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the only one I yeah, think I've all. ever given anything. Yeah, so since then, this is my 10 out of 10 also. Oh shit! Okay. Yeah. So nice, since nice. two years ago, yeah. So yeah. So ten out of tens are very rare. Mm-hmm. How, how did you rate the Watchmen? By by the way, Hardy, I forgot. I think it was a nine. Mm-hmm. Oh, close, close to a ten, but not yeah, a ten. A yeah, nine yeah. or nine point okay. five or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know it's super high because I loved it too, lah. 
Sure, yeah. It's, it's the same production team that did uh, Watchmen and uh, The Leftovers is also the ones no that wonder, did Station uh... Eleven. Yes. Um, I love also the stories about, you know, the, the origin story of the artist behind Station Eleven, yes. which is the comic within the show. Yes. Um, who, you know, and, and, you know, the comic obviously plays a big part in the actual story mm-hmm. of the show. Um, the first line in the comic is, I remember damage, which is the theme of the show. Um, but at the same time, also, I do love that once Jeevan read the comic book, he, you know, there's this episode six or seven when he read the comic and he, he was just like, pretentious yes which the comic which the comic is to be fair (laughs) (laughs) so i love that at least one character thought the comic was pretentious because it had you know it sometimes felt pretentious when they were doing the voiceovers and stuff like narrating the comic yes 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 i was like yeah this is very this is very artsy i don't know whether a lot of people would like it but okay okay but it also came Um, from the voice of someone of a pre-pandemic you see like i I know that uh, both the i mean honestly both characters are also pre-pandemic uh the, the 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 boy and the 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 small girl are also pre-pandemic, but they're young and innocent still, you know. Mm, mm. Uh, maybe um Kristen more so than than the guy. Uh, because you know of his relationship with his father and all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, yeah. They they are they straddle the borderline uh, between yeah. pre and post-pandemic. Um, any final thoughts on Station Eleven before we move on? Hard recommend. Please watch this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, super hard recommend. I have not seen a show this good. There is genre. For a long time, like there are stuff that is non-genre that that I will give ten out of ten. So, oh, yeah. but I think for a good two two point five years, mm-hmm. I've not seen a genre show this good. This is like art uh, house kind of art house genre. Yeah, that can make you feel like hopeful and optimistic, but at the same time also tear jerking. Uh, a believable look at you know um how humanity would cope post pandemic mm-hmm. and during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as you can see, like like me and Hadi have talked about how prescient it is. The fact that this was filmed before COVID nineteen and they kind of like basically pinpointed every single reaction that uh, that all different types of people will have to a pandemic. Yep. Uh it's so well done. It's so perfect. You know, yeah. it's it's as it's as prescient as Watchmen was before Black Lives Matter. Um it's Oh my god, that yeah, good. you're right. Yeah. So yeah, uh ten out of ten once again, super hard recommend. Mm-hmm. Uh and this is where I'm gonna take a break. Take a little take a little break. Uh and Hardy is gonna talk about season four of um <laughs> I, I, I don't I don't I don't wanna influence your rating or anything. Uh, but see but season four of like one of the worst shows I've ever seen, Star Trek Discovery. Let's go. <laughs> You know how we just watch the expense and how they 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 try to build this government between three different you know, factions. Yeah, and I talked yeah. about consequences and all that stuff. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, there's none of that in Star Trek. Yeah, I think it's <laughs> yeah, fun. yeah. Um, a lot of the, uh, it feels like uh, they were dreaming a very big, uh, world bu- world building scenario. It's just mm. that I felt they couldn't. They could. They didn't. Um. They didn't capitalize on such a great, uh, period of time that they they, they decided to go into, which was mm. far future, you know. Mm-hmm. Um. You know the whole like uh the whole issue the the, the lithium you know, having to be you know they exploded and all that and now the 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 the, the, the they have to, uh, did, uh what do you call it uh redistribute this the lithium to everybody so everybody can be connected again into this oneness of the galaxy and all that. There are so many opportunities mm-hmm. that I felt season four kind of just didn't hit. Mm. Um, you know, there was this big bad and all that stuff. I, I don't want to emphasize, I don't want to talk too much about Star Trek Discovery, just that I felt that, again, the focus was wrong because the focus again was on Michael 
and you know, her relationships and all that stuff. Like, I felt that the side characters are the ones that are more intriguing in Star Trek Discovery. Mm. From the doctor to the to the to the the guy that the scientists, you know, the the engineers, you know, to the first the 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 third officer, you know. There's so many other guys that deserved like an episode where they talked about them, just them. You know, or like to explore different era different periods of this uh new world that they have discovered. No mm. pun intended. Mm. Um <laughs> but it always lacked it always felt safe in the end. Mm. Or it or there was always this sense of like uh Deuce ex machina, you know, like things are solved so yep. easily sometimes. Yep. Like they didn't have the the heart of track, I feel. Yep. Um there's like I said, like you cannot win me on a Star Trek show with flashy graphics, with cool battle scenes, you know, or you know, cool explosions and all that, that doesn't work when you're watching a Star Trek show. Mm-hmm. A Star yeah. Trek show must on its own have uh, strong politics in it, strong um, uh, tensions between races, you know, like different uh, alien species and all that stuff and how the 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 what do you call it, the fleet, right, mm. goes in to solve it, you know. Yeah, Star Trek has, and it's, it's from the beginning, from the 60s show, it's been anthropological. You go to different societies, you learn about yes. it. Yes. Uh, and I feel like Discovery has never, or very rarely does that, you know? And it's just like the surface level kind of learning, you know? Like, it's like a, you're reading like the first part of the wiki chip, uh, Wikipedia entry, and then that's it. And then we go on and move on or whatever to the more action mm-hmm. stuff and all that. Like, I, you yeah. know, th- there's so many like races that I wanted to know more about and all that. Like I think the only good thing was like last season when they 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 did they they took they delved more into um the what what's the race of the the first officer Saru's Saru's Saru Saru's race oh Saru yeah Kamina yeah, yeah. Kamina you know when yeah. they were really in Kamina and re- you really learn a lot about the Kaminarians and all that stuff you know mm. here they 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 tried to um they they they, they talked about a bit of the Vulcan uh, Romulan like unity thing. Mm-hmm. But not didn't really delve deeply into it also. You know, everything felt like half hearted or half half baked ideas mm-hmm. that weren't fully realized, I feel. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say that this is the worst discovery season, but second second worst lah, I feel. Like I'm just okay. so, it's just more of a disappointment for me rather than like it's really all out bad. Like I felt they could have mm. done a lot more. They could have gotten into a lot of like um um, Deep Space Nine territory, you know, where they really explored like characters and all that. That was something that was missing again mm-hmm. for the fourth season, you know. <laughs> yeah, so a great disappointment I felt because just because of where they were and how much they, how much world building was possible for them. Yeah, and they just yeah. didn't utilize it. I feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The thing that strikes me about Discovery and um, all the other spin-offs, including Picard, yes. which, which makes me very yeah. sad to see, it, it's is that okay. Uh, number one on the on the good side, uh, Let's let's look at the bright side. Mm. Uh, Star Trek has never looked better. I guess yes. it looks very it looks very shiny and mm-hmm. looks very pretty. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Star Trek also has never been this dumb. Like ever, yeah. it's never been dumber. And I'm talking about a show from the sixties. Uh, you know, yeah. like shows from the sixties for. I mean, how can a show from 2022 be less clever. sociologically or politically clever than a show from the 1960s? Correct. Track has never been this dumb. Uh, it, it's very like, 
intellectually empty and filled with very paper-thin characters right. and stories that pay no heed to the ideals of diplomacy or anthropology or sociology that fuel Star Trek from the 60s to 2005. The reason I say 2005 is that's when Enterprise ended. And then after that, boy, this franchise has gone to hell from the J.J. Abrams yeah. reboot. Enterprise wasn't like the greatest yeah. Star Trek show, but it had certain like great uh, moments in it and like certain Trekky ideals mm. uh, that, that kept the show very Star Trek. Remember the days when we thought that Enterprise was like the worst exactly. Star Trek show? <laughs> And then, like, whoa, boy! Now, now, Enterprise feels like one of the best Star Trek shows. It's just so weird. It, you, you got to see the levels, like, Yeah, you, know? you have to see the levels. You're right. It's a bit like how the sequels have made people appreciate the prequels in Star Wars. Mm. Agree. Yeah, yeah. So the, this is about it, like, But yeah. yeah, I don't like. How would you rate this, Hardy, season four? I'll give it a four out of ten, la. Okay, yeah. that's quite generous, actually. It's near yeah. near past. I mean. I because of certain characters that I still like and there are still moments in it it's not like I totally hated the show it's just I mm. wish that the show could be more mm. yeah. yeah same so it's a form just because uh, I felt that again they didn't fulfill the potential that they were given lah yeah, yeah, that's that's as uh, concise a review as you can get mm-hmm. for Star Trek Discovery Season 4. And um, Hadi will also be talking about Star Trek Picard because I can't be bothered. <laughs> uh, but but that's about it. I'm cutting you off, Hadi. This is it for your this episode. Here. That was fun though. <laughs> oh that, man, I'm happy. That's it. Yeah, I'm glad to have you back, man. Yeah, thanks. Uh, definitely uh, can't wait to, to delve more into uh, next episode. But uh, yeah, you guys go ahead. Uh, talk about Dota and you know, Scream 5 and Hilda. Yeah, yeah. Uh, things but, I didn't watch. <laughs> things I didn't watch. But Hadi will be back in the next episode to talk about the Book of Boba Fett, yeah. Peacemaker, The Legend of Vox Machina. Oh my God, I can't wait like for that. that. Peacemaker and uh, Legend of Vox Machina and Martin. the Book of Boba yes. Fett. Yes, all, all big, big titles. All big, big ones, yes. Big ones. All right. Uh, take care, Hadi. Have a good one. All right, bye guys. Yeah. Uh, next up, I'm going to be talking to you about Petite Maman, which is one of my favorite films that have come out in 2020 this year. Uh, it comes to you from the director of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Celine Siama. Uh, you can listen to our review of Portrait of a Lady on Fire in our Behold archives because we raved about it. It was mm. one of our favorite films from 2019. Well, my favorite film from 2019. And I think Isa caught it just last year. Yeah. Uh, but it remains one of my favorite films of the 21st century and one of the best French films I've ever seen. Uh, so go check out Portrait of a Lady on Fire if you haven't. Uh, but her new film, Celine Siama's new film that is, is called Petite Maman. Uh, unsurprisingly, already a contender for one of the best films of the year. Mm. Uh, but like I said, like anyone expecting a sweeping or passionate period piece should probably you know recalibrate their expectations because this is something very different. This film is intimately focused on a handful of characters, three to four at most, with one single fantastical setting setting up its direct narrative through line. Uh, Josephine Sands, she plays Nelly, who is an eight-year-old daughter of a woman named Marion. So Marion, the, the mother, is under enormous stress. Uh, Marion's own mother, meaning Nelly's grandmother, has just died in a, in, a, in a care home, a nursing home, from long-term complications of a hereditary bone disorder, mm-hmm. which Marion herself has. But when she was young, she got cured of it via a painful operation when she was about Nellie's age. So young Nellie asks her mom if she can keep her grandmother's cane, and Marion agrees, you know, sort of blankly agrees like that, you know. Um, and then Marion and her partner take Nellie on a difficult journey to her late mother's house where she grew up. 
and the memories come flooding back, particularly that of a secret tree hut that she built in the woods adjoining the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marion is so overwhelmed with grief that she leaves Nelly alone with her dad. And Nelly, being an only child, much like her mother, is used to solitude. So her mother's absence, whether physical or emotional, is something that she has to deal with all her life. So she goes out into the woods to play. And she comes across what appears to be a half-finished hut in a clearing. Uh, and a little girl, her age, looking exactly like her, happily waves to her, asking her to help make it. She is the mirror image of Nelly. Uh, in fact, she's so mirror image that she's actually played by Gabrielle Sands, who is Josephine's twin sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she announces that her name is Marion. So after they play together, they go back to Marion's house, which appears to be, again, an eerie mirror, eerie mirror image of Nelly's mother's own childhood home. There, Nelly meets Marion's kindly withdrawn 30-something mom who walks painfully with a cane. Um, so is this a time travel fairy tale? A ghost story? Whatever it is, Petite Maman is very short. Only 72 minutes. It is oh. sweet. It's thoughtful. It is a profound parable about girlhood, motherhood, memory, and friendship. It is very enchanting. In the cyclical, ethereal narrative of this very inventive, tender story of love and loss, mm-hmm. One of the finest French filmmakers of our time spins a spellbinding web. It features wonderful performances from the twin girl sisters, Josephine and Gabrielle. Petite Maman hits all the right notes, creating a sort of mini epic in, uh, it, yeah, an epic in miniature. Um, it achieves so much emotional resonance that in short span, uh, Petite Maman is, among other things, you know, a beautiful ode to a mother-daughter love and this kind of melancholy acknowledgement that distance that always of of the distance that always exists in a relationship when both parties are separated by age and responsibility you see how nelly gets along with her mother when her mother is nelly's age but at the same time when you know experience and growth and pain and trauma have shaped you to the adult that you are perhaps forget the child in you uh this is a 9.5 out of 10 for me super highly rated nice. you can watch it exclu- if you live in singapore that is you can watch it exclusively at a projector uh so shout out to the projector for the screening of this one uh next up also can be seen at the projector uh but at the same time also can be seen on apple tv plus is the tragedy of macbeth um before anyone tells me that macbeth is not genre like fuck right <laughs> off there's magic there's witches there's visions there's ghosts uh, this particular A24 adaptation of the Shakespeare classic is held by Joel Cohen, who is, of course, of the Cohen brothers' fame, and features magnificent performances from Denzel Washington and mm-hmm. Francis McDormand. Mm-hmm. As we all know, uh, or perhaps some of you don't, but this is a widely adapted and widely read story, um, it follows a Scottish lord played by Denzel, who becomes convinced by an oracle that he will become the next king of Scotland. It also, at the same time, follows his ambitious wife, Lady Macbeth, played by McDormand, who supports him in his plans of seizing power. This production makes this story of treachery, murder, and the psychological cost of crossing moral boundaries feel very timeless. Shakespeare loyalists out there may be reassured that I've, that Cohen has been faithful to or, the original text. Mm-hmm. All he does is trim bits here and there, mostly for flow. And, and you know, it's not an extreme abbreviation, but I think in my humble opinion, uh, Macbeth needs a bit of abbreviation and, and, go, and Joel Cohen does it here. Yeah. The words are verbatim Shakespeare's. There's no change in that. But the one, I suppose, notable plot change is that he's made the three witches, aka you know, the weird sisters, yeah. 
into one schizophrenic oracle with three personalities. Sure. Uh, and it's played to Chilling Perfection by Catherine Hunter. But it's not a big change. You know, she's still an oracle. She still tells, tells Macbeth the exact same thing. Um, some people not steeped in Shakespeare might be concerned about whether that sort of rich language would be a barrier. I know a lot of people feel that's a concern, but I think the film's excellent cast handles the text very well, giving it a modern enough delivery that's fairly easy to follow. Mm. It is shot in beautiful black and white, and the sets are spare and cold, almost stagey, um, intentionally so. Stone walls surround the characters with little beyond what is functional for basic human needs. There's just a table or a bed or a chair. There is nothing to indicate that the rooms have ever helped life or joy, and that's purposeful. Mm -hmm. Even the scenes outside are stark. All this adds so much to the mood of coldness and murkiness and ethereal creepiness. This is one of Washington's quietest and most nuanced performances. Mm. He is a powerful actor, and he's often cast in roles that take advantage of his force of nature quality. Yeah. So much so that I feel like Denzel in the last, um, in this century, in the 21st century, has become El Pacino-esque in his, like, you know, <laughs> a caricature of himself. King Kong ain't got nothing on me, etc. Yeah. You know, but here he pulls inward to great effect. And McDormand's Lady Macbeth is a complex woman at a certain age of her life. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are no children here, no sense of family. And in this cold house where she is stuck, one wonders whether her life, what her life has been like uh, and where she will go from here. Lady Macbeth is often seen as a wildly ambitious woman, pushing her husband towards immorality. But in McDormand's hands, her motivations and actions feel subtler. Mm -hmm. Macbeth isn't just a story about power and murder. It's also a study of the abdication of moral responsibility. Uh, it's a study of people who push each other to a point of being unable to stop themselves because of ambition. Yeah. And the film captures that theme in brutal, taut, and most importantly, brisk fashion at only 90 minutes. This was very riveting. I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10 for mm. me. Um, yeah, I mean, like, uh, I said, you've seen a lot of Macbeth, right? Like, yeah. are, you, are, you, are you planning to see this one? Yeah, I'll definitely catch it sometime soon. I have heard some criticisms from it, but overall, just from like your description and stuff like that, uh, I'm definitely. I, I don't think I've not seen an adaptation of Macbeth yet that's come to the big screen. So mm. you know, just if for nothing else, I just want to like see how it compares with everything. I do remember we caught the last adaptation of Macbeth together. Michael Fassbender, mm, yeah, the one with Fassbender together. How do you feel that it, this kind of stacks up in comparison to that, or are they entirely different vehicles? Hmm. I would give the Fassbender film. 6 out of 10, while as this is an 8, so it stacks mm. up very highly. Like it's, it's, it's superior to the Fassbender film, uh, for sure. Okay, okay. Um, I particularly enjoy Shakespeare adaptations, particularly for something like Mubeth or Roman Juliet, etc., that have been adapted like 500 million times. Yeah. Like, you, you, think, you think there are a lot of Spider-Man movies, wait till you see how many times, you know, Shakespeare has been adapted over like the last oh, hundreds yeah. of years, right? You know. Um, and I always appreciate when someone has a different visual or stylistic take on... on something that is so well-worn. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's particularly why so many people love the Leonardo DiCaprio, Romeo and Juliet, right? Yeah. Because it felt so different, you know, it's such a wild take on it. Uh, and similarly, this is a, visually at least, it's a very radical take on Macbeth and I really like it. Um, let's move on though to season two of one of my favorite new animes from last year. It's called 
Dota's Dragon Blood. Uh, it's obviously based on the famous Dota video game. Yep. Um, I've caught season two, but I'm a bit out of breath right now, so I'm gonna give it to Isa. What do you think about Dota's Dragon Blood season two? Oh man, uh, I think it starts off well enough, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I will have to say, unlike the first season, and I think this is just in general with any sort of world building that you're trying to attempt at a large scale, especially for a popular franchise like Dota. Yeah. Uh, yeah. creators often get lost within their own world building. And as a result yeah. of that, I do feel that season two of Dota Dragon Alert, while I enjoyed it by and large, gets very confusing. Um, yeah. There is a lot of uh, plot threads that are mentioned but never tackled or brought up mm-hmm. in the middle of a fight and like uh, you're expected to know what's going on. The problem mm-hmm. is, is that at this point in time, there is simply isn't enough content or literature out there regarding like Dota's general uh, law for you to kind of fill in the blanks. And I find that to be a frustrating uh, just point of contention with season two. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we do follow again all the characters that we were introduced in in kind of season one, right? Uh, with with Davion and Princess Mirana and all of that. There are mm-hmm. a great many revelations which are spoilery, so we're not going to get into that um, yep. as we go along. Uh, but there's just um, you know a lot of um, yeah, a lot of stuff is brought up but never dealt with. A lot of stuff is thrown in your face in the midst mm-hmm. of like a very high stakes conflict. Um, yep. that never get dealt with emotionally um, via the characters or for enough time for you as an audience member to kind of like process what that means to the greater world. It does feel yeah. like a tad rushed. Um, and those are just kind of my main complaints about that. Um, but I will say they have stepped up the action sequences in Season 2. Uh, they mm. are very grand. They are very huge in scale. Extremely epic uh, fight scenes uh, with... with uh, I think, in my opinion, like more violence than we got in season one, mm-hmm. um, you know. But it doesn't quite mesh together as well, you know. I went into season mm. one thinking, okay, let's see, you know, Castlevania's kind of established something, you know. Let's see where Dota goes with this. Very impressed with season one. Um, not as impressed with season two, but I do think it is still a decent watch for fans of season one. Uh, yep. But you do have to do more homework I think to like fully uh, enjoy what is presented to you uh, mm. yeah, yeah what did you think um, I didn't like it <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah that's my short review like. I just I, I dropped off after episode 3 and mm-hmm. I never came back yeah uh, I mean given that it was a very short season in total yeah. uh, and I'll be very honest honest I, I kind of like turned off most of the non kind of fight scenes Sure. Um, yeah, it, it feels like it's not so much a drop in quality, but like the pacing fell off, um, mm-hmm. the plotting fell off, um, some of the character work felt very slipshod. So I totally understand how you um, would would drop off at, at episode three. How do you, how do how do you rate it in the end? Uh, I'm just gonna give it a, a flat five. All right. Okay. Uh, for this okay. season, I think we gave season one fairly good reviews, right? Like it was six ish or seven ish. Uh, so I think it was seven, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and for good reason. Uh, I do think, I'm not really sure why. I have a nagging suspicion that it is crumbling under its own weight, right? Mm. And in addition to that, since season one has come out, we have had a slew of uh, game-based animation series mm-hmm. that have come out that have raised the bar significantly. Yep. 
Uh, Arcane being one of them that we've mm. you know we favored greatly. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's it's coming kind of um, this particular niche of genre, right? Video game adaptations, usually fantasy, um, mm-hmm. are, are coming sharper into focus in terms of where they stand overall, right? We've gotten several seasons of Castlevania right now. We've added the new Witcher animation to this. You know, we've got Arcane that recently came out and one of our favorites from last year. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, season two just didn't rank as highly, you know. Um, a lot of things that they need to kind of work out. Um, maybe it could have been split into two seasons, season two. Maybe that mm-hmm. would have helped, but, you know, it's hard to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking about crumbling under its own weight, I'm going to talk about Scream 5, <laughs> which is the fifth entry in the already, from the beginning, exceedingly meta Scream franchise. Yeah. Uh, this fifth one takes place 25 years after a streak of brutal murders that first shocked the quiet town of Woodsboro. A new killer has donned the ghost face mask and begins targeting a group of teenagers to resurrect secrets from the town's daily past. It is held by the directors of Ready or Not, which is one of my favorite horror comedies in recent years. Um, This latest entry is probably the best of the franchise since the first one. Okay. Since the first one, yeah. Yeah. Um, So it goes Scream 1, Scream 5, and then all the rest of the trash. Uh, All the Scream entries are very self-aware, but this latest one takes it up a notch. The Gen Zers in this installment are just as horror-savvy as their 90s counterparts. Mm-hmm. Uh, case in point, the opening scene is a riff on you know, the classic opening scene in Scream 1 where Drew Barrymore is terrorized by, by the phone you know, in, 19, in the 1996 original, right? You know? And the snarky teenager tells uh, on a modulated, you know, using a modulated voice uh, that she's into elevated horror. Mm. She is name-dropping A24's greatest hits while condescendingly explained that those films are more than just cheap trills. They are metaphors, which is, you know, why a lot of people hate A24 fans uh, as much <laughs> as I love A24. But, you know, it's, 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 it, 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 it knows it's horror. Yeah. Like, these people know horror and they know horror tropes. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm glad they've included um, the elevated horror of A24's canon into this right now also. Mm-hmm. Um, in a signature scream moment, at one point, a character breathlessly monologues about the concept of a requel, which is a reboot sequel that tries to take a franchise back to its roots by combining legacy characters with new ones yeah. whose family tree contains the secret to the killer's motive. Um, it leads into the franchise's genre intelligence, swerving and ducking and kind of winking at the audience like a meta whodunit slasher. Mm-hmm. It proudly proclaims itself to be, you know, a meta who done it slasher. However, it is much similar to the Matrix Re- Resurrections, where there's only kind of so much winking and nodding and self-awareness that you can take before the meta-ness wears off, and you realize that, you know what? Actually, you're right. We have seen and we have seen this and done this all before. Yeah. Um, in fact, the certain instances of nostalgia and meta-ness actively disrupts the momentum of the story. So mm. it is, in fact, a detractment rather than a compliment. So all in all, solid effort. Six out of ten. Appreciate the effort. But um, I think the screen franchise should just be left for dead at this moment. Yeah. Uh, next up, I'm going to be talking about Archive 81, which is Netflix's new eight-episode supernatural horror series. Archive 81 is adapted loosely from a podcast of the same name. It follows an archivist uh, named Dan Turner who becomes obsessed with the subject of old videotapes he was hired to restore. Mm -hmm. So what's on these tapes? It's a documentary following a grad student named Melody Pandras who is doing an oral history of a strange apartment complex that fell victim to a mysterious fire. 
As his restoration continues, he discovers that the tapes tell the story of a malevolent cult and some supernatural phenomena. Um, to its credit, its first episode is brisk and tense and efficiently told. Unfortunately, it later gives way to what I like to call the Netflix bloats, mm -hmm. uh, as later installments are filled with kind of padded out incidents and red herrings and dead ends. And it should have been like, you know, three hours long rather than seven or eight, you know, so it's Netflix, lah. what are you going to do? The conclusion <laughs> is satisfying. Um, so uh, be prepared for like a great first two episodes and a, la a great last two episodes. And for everything in the middle, you just feel like, boy, why is this here? Um, so yeah, it's a 6 out of 10 for me. Mm. Uh, next up, I'm going to be talking about Naomi, which is the latest in the CW's long line of DC shows. It is based on Brian, Manco Brian Michael Bendis' comic. Um, Naomi is seemingly a normal black girl living in the Prime Universe. If you don't know what a Prime Universe is, it's an ordinary universe like ours with like no superheroes or no superpowers. Mm -hmm. It's you know, it's been widely established in DC canon what a prime universe is. Um, and she's like this super fangirl of Superman comics and runs a website dedicated to, in her universe, the fictional hero. So unlike other CW heroes, she is super well-adjusted, has a great relationship with her adopted parents, goes to parties, does well in school, has an active social life, you know. She is not like burdened by trauma like Batman or Arrow or whatever, you know. Yeah. However, things change when she discovers that she does have superpowers and wonders where they come from because this is a world with no super superpowers as it turns out. Mm -hmm. She wasn't born in Prime Earth, but rather in a different Earth in the multiverse that was destroyed. So much like her idol Superman, uh, baby Naomi was kind of sent by her birth parents as a refugee to, uh, to, you know, from her dying Earth to this much safer Earth and, you know, one that is relatively normal, I guess. So... The show is mostly focused on Naomi trying to discover her origins and dealing with surviving supervillains who have survived the destruction on her Earth mm -hmm. and have come to this prime Earth as well. Yeah, It's kind of a standard teen show with... Uh, teen with a destiny show, which is a, a genre of its own. <laughs> um, which is kind of charming and breezy, but nothing too special. So if you remember season one of Smallville, yeah. Naomi, Naomi is pretty much that. It's 6.5 out of 10 for me. Okay. Um, finally, I'm going to be talking about Hitmonkey, which is Hulu's latest Marvel show. It is about a Japanese snow monkey who seeks vengeance after the slaying of his family yeah. with the help of the ghost of an American assassin. It seeks to capture the heights of the, you know, the, the batshit craziness and the adult-oriented comedy of Modoc. Mm. But, you know, which is the previous Hulu yeah. uh, Marvel show. It kind of falls flat on its face, though. It's oh, hollow and silly, not in a good way. Okay. Like, Hitmonkey is a very one-joke character that's very funny for one or two episodes, but becomes tiresome by the end. So it's a 4 out of 10 for me, unfortunately. Mm. Um, next up, moving back to Netflix, uh, mm. Isa is going to be giving you a review of uh, Hilda and the Mountain King, which is a full-length movie uh, spun off from one of our favorite uh, Netflix animated children's shows, Hilda, what do you think about The Mountain King? Oh, man. Um, I really enjoyed The Mountain King. I, I had a chance to watch this. Yeah. Kind of recently. Um, with Hilda and The Mountain King, we pick up directly where we left off uh, from Chapter 13, which is Season 2. Uh, you know, <laughs> and when Hilda, who's now a troll, uh, for any of you that have caught up, right, a roll uh, runs away and is petrified by sunlight uh, as she leaves the stone forest. Uh, and like this whole bunch of shenanigans kind of like happens as she leaves because she's basically been swapped out in her house with Baba. Um, 
yeah, and shenanigans ensue, right? More troll shenanigans ensue, essentially. Uh, I don't want to spoil anything, I think, because anybody who has watched two seasons of Hilda would be very invested to find out what happens here. Um, mm. You would think that a, a kid's show, essentially, right, uh, albeit, uh, albeit something that we have enjoyed thoroughly for two, two seasons now, um, might be a bit of a question mark when it comes to, like, a full-length um, 85-minute um you know, uh, a film length um, show. Yep. yep. Uh, I think Hilda does very well just in terms of uh, appropriately upping the stakes that we've gotten within this the series itself. I think especially just continuing on from season two directly. Uh, and there is a much darker tone to it without necessarily increasing the adultness of the show if if that mm. makes any sense right like there's an appropriately dark tone still for young viewers that tackles some very interesting kind of philosophies and wisdom and extending upon that whole allegory that we've gotten for two seasons about you know the trolls being a part of nature and all of that and and humankind needing to live in harmony with nature and finding that kind of middle ground um yep. that sort of uh moral kind of like comes to a fall with hilda and the mountain king uh, the stories about, you know, um, um, dispelling sort of the otherness, uh, living in somebody else's shoes, uh, mm. acts of kindness and betrayal and openness and willingness to change and believe and hear others out, that all culminate in a very compelling and um, well, well, compelling and well-paced um, show, right? Uh, with, uh, with stakes that are, are, are appropriately high and with consequences that will basically lead us into season three and essentially change the entire uh, place the show has been at for two seasons, more or less. Mm. Um, yep. You know, uh, so like, outside of being able to discuss spoilers and stuff like that, like Hilda and the Mountain King, excellent stuff. Fully enjoyed this. I just feel like it's one of those exercises where, you know, um, if you're doing a, a full feature film, uh, based off of an animated kind of series thing. Like, a lot of people, you know, try and squeeze as much money as they can out of it. Uh, this feels like a very natural progression to the story that we've gotten thus far, and a very good story it is. Uh, but it doesn't feel like one of those cash grabs that you get with, like, anime films, for example. Um, you know, but the it justifies the runtime, right, of having mm -hmm. it as a full feature film by making sure that the themes and problems that it tackles are equally as big as the runtime shows. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Uh, how much rated in the end? Oh, I'm going to give it a solid 7.5 out of 10. Right? Okay. Uh, I think yep. we gave like season 1 an 8 just because it was something fresh, something new at that point in time. Season mm. 2 with all the kind of like social complications of Hilda and, and the mom moving to Troberg and, and the kind of more like school life, slice of life thing didn't feel as magical right uh, at the mm. same time uh, but yeah it's, it's a solid like 7.5 for me um, mm -hmm. yep. for this did you catch Hilda and the Mountain King? yeah I uh, caught it last day it actually at um, after we recorded the January episode of uh, GE so ah. that's why you know we're we talking about it here I think I caught it on the 30th or the 31st mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just before it last year ended I'll, I'll give it a 7 out of 10 it's it's the show is much like the movie it's yeah. cute and breezy and wholesome and spouts an important message about how we treat 
others. Yeah. Uh, or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, a lovely little cartoon as always. It's a 7 out of 10 for me. Yeah. Uh, last topic on this episode is The Remembrance of Earth's Past, Ooh. which is the official, the official title of what is unofficially called the Three Body Problem Trilogy. Okay. Um, I want to like, you know, give Lucasin like, you know, Credit lah by calling it its proper name. Nobody ever does. Nobody calls it yep, the Remembrance no. of Earth Past trilogy. Yeah. Uh, but I want to. That's the official name. But <laughs> if you don't know what it is, it's the Three Body Problem trilogy. And I read the Three Body Problem a long time ago. Yeah. Um, I I thought and still do that it was the greatest hard sci-fi novel of the 21st century. Mm. And my mind was blown by its you know boundless imagination and yes, this expansive timeline and hit spinning real astrophysics, mm-hmm. and um, a uniquely Chinese, communist China-centric perspective on gigantic universal concepts. Yeah. Um, and after many, many years, uh, when COVID hit, like in 2020, I finally followed up and read the other two books in, in the Remembrance of Earth's Past trilogy. And oh boy, if you thought the three-body problem was great, <laughs> um, at least in terms of ideas, in terms of big concepts, in terms of big hit-spinning astrophysics, real astrophysics, mind you, three-body problem pales in comparison to the scale and scope of its sequels, yeah. The Dark Forest and Death's End. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. This was such an epic tale that explored the sociology, psychology, the sciences, the technology, the religions, the environments, the politics, the art forms, uh, multiple interstellar civilizations, human and alien, it spans solar systems, galaxies, and then universes, and even multidimensional planes across billions of years. I've never read sci-fi this ambitious, yeah. and probably will never again. Um, you've recently caught up on most of Remembrance of Earth's yes. past. Um, what have you read, and what do you think okay, about it? Okay, so I, in a kind of blaze, so I, I, I finished uh, the first book sometime last year. Uh, I just finished the second book and I'm a couple of chapters into the third book. Um, mm-hmm. But I, unfortunately, I have, well, not spoiled myself necessarily, but I do have an inkling of how wide the third book goes just from our conversations discussing uh, sure, what we've yeah. had so far and all of that. Um, yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at. I'm a couple of chapters into the third book, um, just past like kind of the new character introductions, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I am... Oh man, uh, I I I would I've always thought right that you know I'm a big hot sci-fi guy. I've read a lot of sci-fi over the years and things like that. Up till recently, for me, like one of my favorite sci-fi authors has been uh, Alastair Reynolds, who we've covered mm. um, before on an episode. A pool is actually, I believe. Yes, um, correct. Yeah, you know, and uh, as much as I love Alastair Reynolds, right, like it, there is something to be said with just skill. Like Reynolds, mm-hmm. an entire kind of universe that he's built that also spans kind of like billions and billions of years and light years, feels small in comparison mm. to the kind of ideas that you are confronted with um, with this particular trilogy, or at least what I've read of it thus far. Uh, yeah. It is mind-boggling, mind-bogglingly huge and complex and it has required me to constantly wiki and read up about what they're talking about just so that I get an understanding of how that kind of fits into the story. Now, if you're not big on doing your own kind of like reading up on like astrophysics and like Mm -hmm. 
well, in some cases, quantum physics. Um, mm-hmm. That's fine, right? Like, you can continue to enjoy the story, all of that. Um, it, it becomes a bit more of a black box within the plot, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to that. But, oh, man, what a ride. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I will say that I do remember very distinctly, it felt very difficult coming into the first book just because I wasn't used to the kind of prose that it is written in. Right. Mm. Uh, we've we've also talked about like how Alastair Reynolds, for example, has very straight kind of prose style that's very mm. direct, and it does feel very scientific. Um, I do feel that there are some things that are lost in translation. There are a lot of analogies at the beginning of the first book, or, or metaphors at the beginning of the first book that are entirely clumsy, or feel mm-hmm. clumsy. And I don't know if that's necessarily the fault of the writing itself or a difficulty in translating what is very well known to be like difficult multi-layered like Chinese idioms for example um, yes uh, I would em- embrace you to check out the, if you see asterisks next to the metaphors uh, go to the back of the book yeah. uh, where um, the translator Ken Liu uh, no relation to Li Susan, but yeah. Ken Liu explains in uh, much larger detail that is obviously he can't sc- <laughs> fit it into the, the book itself like, but yeah. he explains the metaphor in much larger detail yeah. at the end of the book yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate uh, Ken Liu's notes uh, especially yeah. for like facets of you know the cultural revolution and communist China that I'm not familiar with conceptually mm-hmm. uh, and those like really do help me to fill in the world right but at the same time I do feel especially for the first book um, because it does take place in, in a timeline that we know or rather like an earth we recognize uh, mm-hmm. and our recent history, um, it, it does kind of like help to fill in those kind of gaps. Whereas for like um, the second book and the third book, as we begin to move further and further into the future, like that becomes less important as the fictionalized world kind of like materialize uh, w- within the story itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like all three volumes of Remembrance of Earth's Past, I think the the key point of it is that I've never seen a a series of books with such a sophisticated imagination. Yeah. Um, the scope of which is scarcely rivaled in science fiction. Yes. It's nothing like this out there. Um, Liu has this kind of boundless creativity that takes his reader on a trip through, throughout an entire history that, that follows um, the human's first contact with an alien race, the Trisolarans. And it's clear that Liu's biggest inspirations, I feel, were like Isaac Asimov mm. and Arthur C. Clarke. Mm. Uh, probably because his characters constantly reference Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke. <laughs> yeah. um, and by looking at his pension for clarity amongst or amidst immense complexity, his, very, like, his writing is very clear yes. to the point. Yes. So it doesn't overly complicate your brain with already you know, immensely complex concepts. You know? That's the power of Liu's narrative you know, the, the power of Liu's narrative stems from his incredible grasp of scientific intricacies yeah. uh, and the scientific intricacies of the story. And he tackles questions of physics throughout the trilogy that definitely explains um, insane scientific concepts to the layman. Um, and even though he does explain it as well as he can, and you try to grasp what he's trying to say, specifically with, with regards to multi-dimensions, the first, second, third, fourth dimension, and so on, mm-hmm, and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, and, and other aspects of astrophysics and, and, and all that, it's, it's still difficult to grasp. Like, oh, in the yeah. human brain, we did never evolved to... We can't see it because we never evolved, you know, yeah. a concept for it. Yeah. You know? And trying to think of it makes my head hurt. And that, that's the kind of thing that I appreciate with it, like, because he tries to explain it as best as he can, and you can kind of grasp it, but at yeah. the same time, you still feel awed by the immensity of it. And... 
Liu's story also effortlessly weaves in future technologies, you know, like intergalactic space travel mm-hmm. and long-term human hibernation into a narrative that grapples with abrupt and seismic changes to the world. In a way, or at least in, in a way, this, this sense of rapid change obviously parallels Chinese society, right, from the Cultural Revolution in the 60s, yeah. um, all the way to modern-day post-reform and opening, where an ancient culture has managed to be incre- incredibly flexible and adaptive to new technologies that constantly reface their environments. Mm-hmm. And similarly, in Liu's trilogy, like humans are constantly faced with the new status quo and are forced to exit maximum effort to adapt and overcome. Um, what do you think about like you know this this kind of parallel between communist China and how it had to adapt to how you know humanity had to adapt in the face of trisolarance and then bigger revelations later on? Yeah, um, I I appreciate the fact that the entire setting is one that we are mostly unfamiliar with, right? Yeah, and I have yeah, a feeling yeah. that you know a lot of the time a lot of Western critics and readers really took to that because it offered something entirely different uh, in terms of mm-hmm. a point of view for that. The parallel, I think, definitely is something that if you were focusing a lot on the sci-fi aspects of things, you could easily miss. You know, um, It's definitely woven in such a way that it feels very seamless um, mm. in terms of like the, it's, um, the story's placement within history, right, of the Cultural Revolution of Communist China and things like yep. that. And the extension of that um, to the future, right, and even to the far future and even in terms of the characters that end up at the end of time, right, and all those things that have been like, kind of ingrained into their belief system and their worldview, how that plays out is amazing. It is, it is insane to have to think about those things on top of all the co- the major scientific concepts that we we have to kind of like fit into the story itself um mm. is it is it plausible most certainly most certainly i think i don't think you could buy into the story without yep. you know um an understanding of 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 what um communist china was what it is now mm-hmm. right and what it will be in the future uh, without kind of derailing a lot of the character choices that are made, or even like the more meta kind of choices that are made on a global or governmental level that affect the storyline and where we go from there. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's incredibly smart, right? Um, I, at this point, being just starting into the third book, have a feeling mm. that I'm going to have to revisit this again and it feels like I might not, I have, I'm just not smart enough or just not well read enough at this point in time to fully yeah. appreciate where this is going, but I'm fully enjoying what is a very dense, complex, and ultimately fun ride just because there's so much that's unknown. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, dense is the word, you know, and, and also um, it portrays a very realistic view of how humanity would react to. Uh, first contact or an alien threat, like For humanity's sure. help, helplessness. You know, it's not an Independence Day kind of rah rah. Let's go fuck them up. You know, yeah. Like humanity is literally helpless in the face of an alien threat, a soup, like beyond measure, um, technologically superior alien threat in the first book. Yeah. And then eventually, other even more technologically uh, <laughs> advanced alien species uh, pop up. You know, yeah. um, the dark. You 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 see what I mean when you learn what the dark forest theory is, um, and then eventually beyond alien species, there are even beings from higher and lower dimensional planes. Yeah, and yeah. 
it's constantly enthralling. It continues to one-up itself in asking you to imagine unimaginable, but also very, very real yeah. astrophysical and cosmological concepts. And like in particular, like for example, in the second and, and third books, like Liu's description of four-dimensional space mm-hmm. um, makes me like literally nauseous. Yeah. Uh, like like I feel like vomiting trying to imagine it because I can't. Yeah. You know, my brain is just not adapted to, yeah. to understand it. You know? And while at the same time, also, you know, beyond the great science of the book, it also asks and poses like Battlestar Galactica levels of <laughs> gut-wrenching moral quandaries. Yeah. You know, what is the greater good? Should we, you know, stuff like that. Like, uh, the, the human question like, is not forgotten yeah. and the emotion is not forgotten. And these books constantly implement circumstances that test the boundaries of humanity's ability to solve problems. Mm. And the series asks fascinating questions about basic value systems we hold as humans and how those systems may respond to extreme situations. And it presents so many instances of, you know, that, that so many crises that, that push humanity to the brink, um, literally and also psychologically. Um, and I think it feels like you're reading the most gripping and expensive alternate history book ever written. Mm-hmm. And in a way you are, because this is the story of humanity's history, aka the remembrance of Earth's past, you know, starting from ancient primitive cavemen to the fall of Constantinople in 1453, to the Chinese Cultural Revolution, to modern day, and then to hundreds of of years in the future, and then to thousands of years in the future, and then to hundreds of thousands of years in the future. And then finally, at the end of the final book, you flash forward to 19 billion years from now. And I personally consider Remembrance of Earth's Past to be, I think, the pinnacle of hard sci-fi literature. Mm. There has been no sci-fi saga as imaginative as this, and I truly thing there never will be like this is it this is as far as you can push it and Liu Jizit has like pushed it very very far yeah. like uh, to, to the point where I om- I'm almost scared when I think about his concepts you know yeah. um, what, what, what about you man like what what are your like final like concluding <sighs> overall thoughts oh, about man. what you've read so far I, I, I think what, what my takeaway or my biggest kind of takeaway is is that at the end of the day what is humanity when faced with an almost unlimited uncaring universe filled with other sapient beings right who at the end of the day are also in their own way looking for their own their own kind of like identity within this mm. massive in like you can't uh un- incompre- incomprehensible yeah like space and time right mm-hmm. um and for him to be able to bring us along in this you know literally time-spanning journey um and, and for us to for him to be able to place a character there that we can relate to that we can have insight to what they are thinking mm-hmm. and be able to draw where those thoughts and those influences uh come from you know their upbringing their family their job their experiences and who they mm-hmm. are as people uh is insane like that yeah. for me is kind of the main thing to be able to place you know, a, a a piece of humanity at the very end of time to see what they are like and to be able to bring an audience all the way through that is a feat that I don't think is going to be replicated anytime soon just in terms of not just the imagination of it, but like the like the technical ability across these three books, right? Is is kind of mind-blowing. Mm, yes, yeah. I feel like... When you read the first book, I think a lot of people have read the three body problem and haven't bothered to follow up, like, much like me. Yeah. You know? Um. And only in twenty twenty, and you in uh, twenty twenty one, like started following up. Mm-hmm. 
when you read something a, a concept as cool as the Sophons, which is like one of the coolest concepts yeah. that I've ever read, you know yeah. what uh, I can't explain to you what a Sophon is. You know, it's it's a lot of techno babble if I start to explain what the concept is. Sure. But it's the cool, it's the coolest, it's the coolest dimensional concept I've ever heard of. Yeah. Uh, in terms of uh, achieving instantaneous uh, communication uh, over like this, it's yep. <laughs> so cool and it's so real. And to hear like people like you know Adam Savage or whatever talk about like how real that theory is, yes, you know, um, is is mind blowing. Like I can't imagine that things like this, you know, it's magic. You know, like like that old saying. You know, like that old saying is um, technology you don't understand is magic. Right? Yes. you know, mm-hmm. uh, it it feels like magic to me, and yep. it's more mind blowing than magic to be honest. You know, uh, what what Liu Chesin is describing yeah. here and is and the Sophons in book one are like the least interesting thing oh, by book three. For sure. Yeah. 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 Okay, spo- we're go- let's go into spoiler territory. Just one thing that I came across recently I really dying to discuss. Like sure. the fact that the universe largely ex- uh, the fact that most beings in the universe exist in in ten dimensions. Right? Mm-hmm. And the basically like this um this like burnt uh this scorch earth policy that they have mm-hmm. they have uh, done by collapsing between dimensions and eradicating one dimension above them to kill everything that's in it blew my mind. Yeah. I'm just like, what the fuck? Are you serious? Like, that's yeah. beyond genocide, right? That's mm-hmm. like, I don't even know if there's a term for that, you know, but the very fact that conflict and warfare and, mm-hmm. you know, like this competition for resources can take place on a universal cosmic scale um, mm-hmm. and to, for it to be explained in that way like I, I had to put down the book for a while just to be like, what the fuck am I reading? Like it's so good, yeah. but I, my, my human brain is having trouble mm-hmm. comprehending this, right? And I cannot yes. imagine what it's like writing this. Like what kind of brain sits in that head? You know, you know, like all the mathematical equations, um, all say like I mean, like the the equations don't make sense unless the the world once had ten dimensions. Yeah. Like they just don't make sense. Like they don't fit. Yeah. So Luchasin tries to say that there were once ten, ten dimensions. So the only reason there's only three dimensions now is because warfare across dimensions four to ten uh, has eliminated them basically yeah. by folding them down. You know, and there are beings from the fourth to tenth dimensions who have escaped to the third dimension. Yeah. And you know, uh, it's a wild, insane concept. It's like insane. physics. Physics is the greatest weapon that sentient beings have ever encountered. You know, just you know, like to weaponize concepts like this yeah. is crazy. It's one of the wildest things. These are like not nukes. You know, this you are eliminating an entire dimensional space yeah. from the entire universe. It's it's one of the wildest concepts out there, like, And and you you will continue to encounter encounter more wild concepts, you know, especially once. Uh, spoiler alert: the third dimension is gone. Yeah, but yeah. Um, crazy um the way that it ends um it the way that it ends is quite beautiful mm-hmm. uh it can also be followed up to be honest in in subsequent books yeah uh yeah apparently uh, if, if you if you wanted to yeah there is going to be a follow-up isn't there 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 was a follow-up uh there's a fourth book by there's a fan fiction fourth book ah, that has been officially canonized by Luchasin. amazing okay cool cool so i have something to look forward to yeah uh the fourth book though is like mixed reactions. It is not quite as good as Luchasin because it's not by Luchasin, but mm-hmm. Luchasin like appreciates the effort and he enjoyed the fanfiction so much that he made it unofficially the or actually officially like the, the the fourth novel in his series. Amazing. That is insane. Uh shout out to all fanfiction writers out there. There is hope. 
Yeah, 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 definitely. And that was our review for the Remembrance of Earth's Past, aka the Three Body Problem trilogy. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to talk about anti-Valentine films. Um, <laughs> boy, um, a lot of painful rewatches coming up, including Closer, oh uh, Marriage Story, uh, Blue Valentine. Probably the Lobster is the most fun of of the four. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, um, yeah. E- but even that has a sort of anti anti. Um, romance message yes uh but yeah we'll be getting into that for our special anti-valentine's day episode which is the opposite of our valentine's day episode last year mm-hmm. uh we'll be back next month for a new episode of genre equality with the book of boba fett peacemaker legend of box machina um the new uncharted movie which is probably gonna suck because it's you know it's been on the shelf for five years um, yep uh, I'm still going to talk to you about Demon Slayer, the Entertainment District arc, which will wrap up in three episodes. Yep. And I'm going to be talking about the return of, um, hands down, the champion of current comic book saga, uh, who has, you know, been on hiatus for 3.5 years. Mm-hmm. Brian K. Vaughan finally got off his ass and his back. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, I know Brian K. Vaughan and Fiona Staples had like, you know, new families and stuff like that. So they had to take an extended break because, you know, life got in the way. Yeah. Um, I get that, but like as a fan, I was like very angry, <laughs> uh, and 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 I'm glad that they, especially where the comic left off, mm-hmm. um, it was very frustrating to have to wait 3.5 years. Um, but it's back and it's great. So I'll talk to you about that in genre quality 51. Awesome. Um, any parting words before we head off here? Uh, no, no. Um, enjoy yourselves over the uh, Chinese New Year holidays for those of you who celebrate that. Oh yeah, uh, you know all the prosperity and all of that all upon you and your family. Mm. Uh, I hope you get rich, as Ronnie Cheng has said. Um, yeah, yeah. And if you're not Chinese, there is the prosperity burger um back. So yeah, I'm yes, probably going to order that soon. Okay. Uh, till next time, though. This has been Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, goodbye, guys. Ciao.